Well, good morning again. Good to see you. Uh, I'm Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're visiting. Um, and we are continuing in a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Last Sunday, we looked at a series of blessings and woes Jesus pronounced in one of his most famous sermons, likely the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and they were very strange blessings, to be sure. Uh, but he said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, uh, blessed are the weeping, and blessed are the rejected. And you say, what? what? Uh, those don't feel like blessings. Uh, it reminds me of something that happened to Winston Churchill uh, after he had walked the United Kingdom through the Second World War. You know, they win World War II. Uh, the uh, British people voted him out of office, and his wife at this time, well, his only wife, as I recall, Clementine, she came to him and she said, she said Winston, I think this, it's, it's a blessing in disguise. And Churchill replied to her, well, it's very cleverly disguised. <laughs> right, very cleverly disguised. B- poverty and hunger and sorrow and rejection. How are, how are these blessings? Well, it turns out, as I said, you know, many of the people who were in the audience for the sermon were the poor and the rejected and the hungry. And Jesus looks out on an audience of, of nobodies and says, to you, the kingdom of heaven, to, to you, God's eternal kingdom, it belongs to you. Like all of the blessings of God's eternal kingdom, I am, I am bringing it to you, to all who um, will believe in me and follow me as the true king. You are truly blessed. And so we talked about hashtag blessed and when you can truly say that. Uh, today we come to perhaps the most challenging and daunting of all of Christ's ethical teachings. And it is the commandment that we are to love our, our enemies. Uh, Jesus knew that no one would be surprised if he is a good rabbi taught that we should love our friends and love those who do good to us, uh, that love our neighbors But verse 27, I I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, quote unquote sinners, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom, with whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be called the sons of the Most High Because God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Amen. 
Let me begin with one of the more sordid stories in church history that I heard uh, Kevin DeYoung recount recently. It is the complicated ordeal between Pope Gregory and Henry IV, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. So Pope Gregory was trying to reform the church, and he wanted to get rid of something they called lay investiture, which means lay people, non-clergy, who were appointing bishops, or in this case, the emperor who was appointing bishops. Uh, Not surprisingly, uh, the emperor thought it was very important that I, as the emperor, be able to appoint bishops who support me. So when there was a riot that broke out in the city of Milan, Henry deposed the bishop of that city, and he appointed his own, his own bishop. Well, Gregory the Pope was very upset by this, so he ordered Henry to appear at Rome, and he said, if you don't re- appear by a certain date, I will depose you from your office, and your soul will be in danger of hell. Henry thought, I'm the emperor. I don't have to do that. So Henry called a council of his supporters, and they declared that Gregory, Gregory was deposed. Soon after that, Gregory called a synod of his supporters, and they put Henry under church discipline and told him that he could not rule anymore, and they forbade anyone from obeying him, and they threatened to curse down upon them should they acknowledge him as king. Well, Henry's supporters were uh, undid, undone by this announcement. They were afraid they would be cursed and their souls would be going to hell if they supported the Holy Roman Emperor, so they, his support unraveled. And Henry, recognizing he was in a very dangerous position, uh, he was on the verge of being overthrown, he decided that all he had left to do was to go to the Pope and beg the Pope's uh, forgiveness. So you get one of the most famous scenes in church history. On uh, January the 25th, King Henry IV, the emperor of uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, he crosses the, the Alps in the dead of winter, and he arrives outside of one of the castles, the Pope's castles, in the snow. And there for three days, he is groveling in the snow outside the castle just to prove that he is penitent. Um, and there are many paintings, you know, famous pieces of sacred art that show Henry in the snow waiting on the Pope, Pope to let him in. Well, finally, the Pope does. He lets him in. He apologizes. He begs for the Pope's mercy. And the Pope agrees to restore him to the church. So we, we, we have a happy ending, don't we? Not exactly. <laughs> Henry returns to Germany, and his enemies are emboldened because he's been running into difficulties with the Pope, and his enemies rebel against him. Uh, Gregory the Pope does nothing to discourage the rebellion, so the rebels of Henry elect, elect their own emperor. So now there's a rival emperor, and Gregory decides, I'm going to support the newly elected emperor, and he excommunicates Henry again. But this time, Henry's followers are not so easily scared off. (laughs) So they, what do you think they did? They elect their own pope. You have a rival emperor? Well, you have a rival pope. And the rival emperor, he is killed in battle. Henry once again enters into a position of strength. So he marches upon the city of Rome to attack it. And Gregory is a complete sitting duck. He's, he is, uh, he's in trouble. And the only people who can come and save him are the Normans. But Gregory has already excommunicated the Normans. So the Normans are not that inclined to help him. Uh, the Normans do come to the city. But instead of rescuing Gregory, they burn it. 
They kill many of the inhabitants of the city. They enslave the others. And so you have Henry, who is the emperor. Gregory, who flees the city and goes into hiding. And Clement, the rival pope, ascends to the papacy. And what we have here is obviously a textbook example of exactly what Jesus talks about in our passage, right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Um, what, a, what a dumpster fire. And really, you, you do not have to look very far in church history to find this. Just on the pages, page after page after page of church history. Uh, I mean, I think we have to, we have to admit that large sections of Christianity down through, the, down through the years, they just, they know absolutely nothing about what Jesus is talking about here, do they? Like so many Christians down through the ages like, seem to have absolutely no intent or determination to try and live the life that he unequivocally tells us we must live as his disciples But friends, no sooner do we point the accusing finger at them than we hold up the mirror at ourselves, right? And we ask ourselves, do I have any idea of what Jesus is talking about here? Do I really intend to live this kind of life, a life that that blesses those who want to harm me, who curse me? Well, let's look and see what Jesus tells us uh, in more detail. He tells us to begin with turning the other cheek, right? Very famous statement. If your enemy uh, strikes you on one cheek, then you are to turn to him the other. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew Matthew chapter 5, that portion of the Sermon on the Mount, it's even specified in greater detail that if your enemy strikes you on your right cheek, then you are to turn to him your left. Well, in you know, I guess everybody and the majority of people in the world are right-handed. So if your enemy is striking you on your right cheek, that means that they are giving you a backhanded slap. So no, it's not an act of physical violence. He's not saying, let them punch you once and punch you again. If somebody slaps you across the face with the back of their hand, they're expressing their deep contempt for you. I mean, a slap is a public insult, a very, very strong insult. And uh, Jesus says that if, if somebody smacks you like this, if, if you receive a shameful insult, if someone says something really, really nasty about you or someone you love, if somebody says something terrible about your kids or your wife, uh, it's funny there are something like seven different verbs in the New Testament for people speaking evil against you as Christians. Um, Apparently, the New Testament writers had a very rich vocabulary for for people speaking evil about us because it was so common for the early Christians. They were constantly being called terrible things. They were called cannibals. Did you know that? Cannibals, because they ate the body and blood of Jesus on Sunday. They were called incestuous because they called everyone, uh, each other, brothers and sisters. They were called atheists because they didn't recognize all of the different gods. They were just monotheists. So yeah, six or seven different verbs in the New Testament for, for when people speak evil about you. When you are reviled, mocked, maligned, slandered, all of that 
you are to just take it. To just let, let it go. Uh, and even allow them to insult you again if they wish you. That's what it means to turn the other cheek. Jesus piles on. <laughs> he says, and if that same person who insulted you so maliciously comes to you the next morning with a significant financial need, you are supposed to, you're supposed to loan to them. <laughs> you're supposed to give to them what they ask for, not expecting any form of repayment. That's a very strange kind of loan, isn't it? <laughs> a loan that doesn't expect any kind of repayment. I guess that's really not a loan. <laughs> that's a gift. To the one who had, had said such nasty and terrible things about you. Oh, and, and by the way, if they are taking your cloak, then allow them to take even the last bit of undergarment that you have. Allow them to take your, your, uh, your tunic too. If they're robbing your house, then say to them, oh, by the way, here's my safe behind the picture. <laughs> uh, these are hard words. These are so hard. Several years ago, an English professor at Texas A&M was leading a, a literature class, and she assigned as part of the reading the Sermon of, on the Mount, the reading of the Sermon on the Mount to the literature class. Most of the students had never read it in its entirety before. They were familiar with little parts about love your enemies. That sounds nice. We're all for loving everyone, right? Uh, so they read it for the very first time, and she asked her class to give her some kind of very honest feedback. The students were blunt in their evaluation. She said, the overwhelming consensus was, this is the stupidest thing I've ever read in my life. <laughs> this is absurd. What, the expectations that Jesus has here are completely undoable. These are the most unrealistic expectations one could ever expect of your followers. Are they? Well, yes and, and no. Um, Yes, yeah, so on one hand, maybe they didn't get this, but Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. <laughs> Jesus loves to speak in exaggerated terms. I mean, if everybody followed the words of Luke 6 to the, to the T, we would probably have a world that was just full of anarchy, right? But no, Jesus is speaking somewhat hyperbolically here. Uh, and he does this on another occasion. He'll teach people that they must hate their father and mother in order to become his disciples. Or he will tell another man one day that he must sell everything he know, owns, every last possession, and uh, all the while maintaining that it is an impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, which I think would probably rule all of us out by that token. Um, so on one level, Jesus doesn't mean for us to, to do this. It's hyperbolic. It's, it's exaggerated. On another, another level, Jesus absolutely wants us to do this, right? Like it would be so nice to dismiss all of this teaching about uh, enemy love as mere hyperbole. But, but we can't. We can't. We must not. You have people in your life who it, it feels like they are, are really out to get you. <laughs> um, this person could be a former spouse. This person could be your mom or dad. It could be someone in this church. It could be your employer. <laughs> 
It could be your coworker. Um, there are people, I mean, they, are your, they feel like they are your enemy. And what do enemies want to do? They want to harm you. They want to harass you, embarrass you. They want to they take the knife and stick it in your back. And typically our enemies are, are folks that are completely unappeasable. Like it doesn't matter how hard you try to understand or how good of a listener you are. It's like they will not have it. They are unappeasable and they are out, they are out to, to, do you, to do you ill. Uh, what are we supposed to do with those kinds of people? And Jesus says, quite simply, you start, you start by praying. You come before God Almighty and you say, Lord, I want you to bless them. Lord, I am, I am hurt, harassed, harmed, and embarrassed, but I want you to heal them. And if there is any way that I might be a means of blessing to them, if there's any way that I can serve them, then give me the opportunity to do so. Because that is what the scriptures say. If your enemy is hungry, you're supposed to feed them. And if he's thirsty, you're supposed to give him something to drink. If he is in need of a cloak, then you're to give him his tunic, your tunic too. Um, you just like, ah! <laughs> Deep breath, full stop. God wants you to do this. Jesus demands that we do this. And he does so all the while knowing how hard it is. It is so hard to pray for someone who has really, really hurt you. And who is re- when you are really angry and you have been really justifiably wronged. It is so hard to pray that heaven would explode in blessings upon them. I mean, who can do that? Jesus calls us not toward a frosty silence. And he calls us not, of course, to reply with an insult and not to merely tolerate them and coexist, but to actively seek the good of our enemies by seeking it in the highest place that we possibly can, which is the throne room of God itself. I very much appreciate what's recorded in the Book of Common Prayer. One of the prayers that are there, uh, it says this, O God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them in us from falsehood into truth. Deliver them in us from hatred, from cruelty and revenge, and in your good time enable us to all stand reconciled before you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, and he understands just just how difficult it is to pray a prayer. Like, it takes a, an amazing work of the Holy Spirit inside of you in order to pray that kind of prayer with uh, your whole heart. So we're to turn the other cheek. We are to seek their good. We are to pray God's blessing on them. One other thing you may want to consider praying about, I came across this this week, but uh, Carl Jung, the founder of analytical um, the discipline of analytical psychology, the great Swiss uh, psychologist, not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but Carl Jung said this, very profound. He said, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. 
Like everything that irritates us about our enemies can be even a mirror to better understand ourselves. And so one of the things you may want to pray in, in addition for God's blessing is, Lord, let me understand you through this and understand your word through this and understand him and her and me uh, through this terrible ordeal. And thankfully, you know what happens often, not always, but very often when we start to pray for our enemies, all of that anger, all of that hatred, all, all that stuff that's got us just twisted up inside, you find it's released. It gets like released inside of you. It, it goes, it's, it's relinquished when you begin to pray for them. <clears throat> all right. Uh, Let me make now a few clarifications, very important clarifications. Jesus' teaching here about enemy love does not mean an abused wife must just keep taking it. Like a huge mistake people make is not to hear Jesus' words in the context of the rest of the Bible. And some have very wrongly understood Jesus' teaching on enemy love to mean it doesn't matter if you're subject to domestic abuse or sexual abuse. You just have to deal with it. You just have to turn the other cheek. Absolutely not. We read in Romans chapter 13 that God has instituted government to be a check on evil. And so while we are not to be the ones who takes the law into our own hands, God has instituted legal authorities and he's instituted even ecclesiastical authorities like pastors and elders as imperfect as we are to protect people like you. And so, no, uh, turning the other cheek does not mean that you are a doormat who just continues to absorb this. Interesting, I never realized, or, or nobody never ever pointed this out to me until this week. If you remember on the night that Jesus was erected in the, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, they take him back to the Jewish ruling council, which was named the Sanhedrin. And through the night, they hold an illegal trial in which Jesus will be sentenced and then later executed on the cross the very next day. During that illegal trial, do you remember what happens? Jesus gets slapped across the face. And do you know what's recorded or not recorded in the Bible? Nowhere is it recorded that he then turned his face and took a second slap. But in fact, in that moment, in that miscarriage of justice, he spoke up. And he actually denounced the sham trial that was taking place there in the house of the high priest. So, uh, just a very important clarification I want to make. I mean, I've read lots of commentaries on Luke 6, and none of them say that here Jesus is forbidding self-defense. Or saying that if someone suffers unjustly, all they can do is invite more injustice into their life. No, absolutely not. Now, that clarification being made, uh, it shouldn't, like, um, minimize, nevertheless, how radical of a thing is being called for right here. Uh, and Jesus, he knows, he knows, I think he knows, <laughs> that our immediate reaction when we hear these words, A, we're just going to say, I can't do it, and B, if I do it, it sounds like suicide, <laughs> You know, it just sounds, it sounds impossible for me to do this. If you really knew my enemy, if this is impossible. And if I were to do it, it's, it's suicide. And he says, no, no, here's, here's why you must do it. And he gives at least two reasons, three reasons. Number one, verse 36, 
God, your Father, is merciful. And verse 35, God, your Father, is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. And if you are his children, you will do the same. He's saying, he's making the argument from family resemblance. Like father, like daughter. Like father, like son. Um, Our father is famous for loving his enemies, is he not? And being so generous to those who are are rebels against him. Uh, Who are those rebellious, unkind, wicked enemies? We say, moi, us. See, a Christian knows this about him or herself. That we know that we are former enemies of God who have been loved and adopted into his royal family. And if we are part of this family, yeah, we will act like our father. Romans 5, so wonderfully the gospel is articulated. Romans 5, verse 6, you see at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for the enemies. Very rarely will anyone even die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still enemies, sinners, Christ died for us. And I I think, friends, we're just supposed to understand this to be the dynamite. Uh, This is the fuse of the gospel has to be lit. And if you do so, this is the dynamite inside of you that enables you in part to do this. Secondly, very important for us to recognize, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself has not. You remember uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. On the cross, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats, but instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might uh, die to sins. We might die to sins and live for righteousness. And there's beautiful words. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Remember on the cross, they took his tunic. On the cross, they took his tunic and didn't, he didn't ask for it back. And they spit on him, they cursed him, and they reviled him, but he did not spit back. Instead, what did he do on the cross? He prayed for them. He prayed for them. The very thing that he's telling us to do here. He turned the other cheek and prayed, Father, bless them with the greatest thing that they could be given right this moment. Forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, And so, yes, we must understand, Jesus never tells us to do something that he himself doesn't obey and fulfill on the cross itself. And then thirdly, verse 35, let me read it to you. Mm. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be called sons of God of the Most High. And he never goes on and explains exactly what that reward is. But I think we as parents are able to kind of imagine it. I mean, when you know, when one of your children comes home and they have done something that took tremendous courage and tremendous character 
Uh, and it was very difficult. It was like a maturity well beyond their years. And, they, and you hear about that. I mean, you just feel so proud, so proud of them, right? You're just beaming with, with pride and love. And I wonder if that isn't the reward. Just our father's uh, so proud when he knows when we've done something that is so painful and hard for us. He's so proud. Let me finish with a final story of, um, it's a story of a missionary couple who were serving in North Africa with pioneer Bible translators. Uh, It's South Sudan. So they and their three little girls were living on the outskirts of a refugee camp in South Sudan, uh, working on a Bible translation for a couple of the underreached Muslim groups who were represented in this um, refugee camp. And it's the wife here who's writing her reflections. These were from December of 2017. So a relatively recent story. And here's what she says. She said, So this past Christmas, it was a rough one. I'll spare you all the gory details, but on Christmas Day, fighting broke out in our area. And, and when I say our area, I mean soldiers shooting at each other from our fence line. And we spent a couple of days on the floor before things were quiet enough for some brave bush pilots to fly in and evacuate our family safely to Uganda. Shortly after we arrived in East Africa and Uganda, Brian and I were haunting the aisles of a big supermarket, just walking around dazed in a fog, feeling paralyzed by what cereal to buy uh, because of just this last this, uh, traumatic event. And I, rem- I remember being rather matter-of-fact in that moment as I said something like, you know, this will still be, it'll, it'll be all okay as long as we don't get looted. Two hours later, our phone rang. You've been looted. You've lost everything that was in your house except for the refrigerator, which was too big for them basically to transport out. Well, fast forward four months later, I'm still in Uganda, and Brian has traveled back to the Sudan, and we were talking. Uh, He and some of his friends had gone to the market for lunch and had sat down in a small mud and tarp restaurant for a bite to eat. And just like every restaurant does in that part of the world, a woman came out and she set down a pitcher of water and some plastic cups on the table in front of them. Only these weren't just any plastic cups. They were ours. They were these tacky, lenticular knockoff Disney princess cups that I had found in some random shop run by a friendly Darfuri man a couple years ago and had given them to my two-year-old as a potty training reward. Uh, Costly and sentimental cups? No, No, not really. Belonging to us cups? Most assuredly, they were. Brian, did you demand to get them back? I breathed hotly into the phone. He said, um, no. He had casually asked the woman where she had got the cups. And when she had awkwardly mumbled about them being hers, he simply told her that they had once belonged to his family, and he left it at that. And I'll tell you what happened. I went to bed that night so mad. The dumb Disney cups reminded me that almost everything we once owned in South Sudan is now scattered to the wind. And while it's easy to say things like, well, I'm sure it's all, it all ended up in the hands of people who needed it more than we did, uh, 
When confronted with the reality that somebody else is using your stolen stuff, whether or not they need it, it kind of makes it emotionally obsolete. (laughs) However, at some point that evening, through the haze of my feelings of frustration and my general crankiness, the the words of Jesus came to mind, unwelcomely unwelcomely so. Luke 6.30, Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes back what belongs to you, Uh, takes what belongs to you. Do not demand it back. I'm embarrassed to say that after 24 years as a follower of Jesus, this may be the first time I've sincerely gut-wrestled with those words. And it's easy to explain them away, isn't it? Because of course, Jesus wouldn't want us to be irresponsible in our generosity. and, And he certainly wouldn't want us to just get taken advantage of like idiots. Of course, he wants us to be kind and charitable to the deserving, but he doesn't want us to be crazy people, right? (laughs) Except that's not what he says. He doesn't nuance it or give explanatory caveats. He, He just says, do it. And it's in the context of lots of other absurdly oversimplified statements like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ridiculous, right? Pretty straightforward. None of us have a hard time knowing what he's actually telling us to do. And lying in bed at that moment, I I realized that taking Jesus' words at face value was incredibly tough and overwhelmingly freeing. (laughs) Incredibly tough and overwhelmingly freeing. Here's what I want you to leave with. Um, I know this is a long sermon, but this is really important. Because uh, the church has done this terribly. And I, I really believe that, you know, for us to have a really big effect in society, like we will only, we will only buy social favor or clout to the extent that we live lives that look like Jesus Christ in society. And here's what I want to leave you with. When you, when you think deeply about your own life, do you really intend to live that kind of life? Do you really intend to, to do this? Uh, and I have to ask myself that. Like, I, I wonder sometimes when I preach, stand in front of you on Sunday, like, am I up here just perpetuating an institution and taking a salary? You know, perpetuating the capital C church and and living a very comfortable middle-class lifestyle, all the while thinking that these are nice hyperbolic words. Let's turn the page. Do we really expect to live this kind of life? And, and do I call you? Do, do I expect you and call you to live this kind of life? And how do we do it? I mean, what I know about myself is I'm the kind of guy... <laughs> I'm the kind of guy who would throw himself in front of the bus in order to save the baby in the stroller. But I'm probably not the kind of guy who stays up and does dishes after everyone else has gone to bed. And so I think that I'll rise to the big occasion, but will I really rise to the big occasion if I won't do all the the million small things? I think for us to truly love those who treat us this badly... It will probably require those million little moments through the course of every day and week where we must die to ourselves to build the kind of character 
that it's going to take to make this kind of thing even possible. And I mean, you know, the Bible is far more interested in your character than it is uh, what decisions uh, you're making and particular decisions you're making in your own life. That's why I think God will give us a million little opportunities throughout the day and throughout the week to die to ourselves, to die to our pride, to overlook offenses, to give generously and to serve without any expectation of reciprocity and repayment um, in order for us to learn how we deeply love our enemies. And all of it is powered by the gospel, isn't it? That this is what Christ has done for us. All of it is powered by God's love for us in Christ, a love for us when we were his enemies. And, and we must think very deeply and pray very sincerely uh, about that, mustn't we? Amen.